we are pretty good about understanding customers and what they're focusing on. We, we've got to use those same empathetic techniques to apply to supply chain partners and ecosystem stakeholders and competitors also, uh, even regulators. Like why are regulators making the moves they're making? From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was John Horn, author of the new book, Inside the Competitor's Mindset. He's our guest today for a discussion about how to better understand your competitors and maximize the value of your competitive insights. John's a professor of practice and economics at the Olin Business School at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's also a McKinsey alum. We also have Emma Gibbs with us. She's a partner in our London office and the head of our strategy and corporate finance practice in the UK, Ireland, and Israel. She'll help lead today's conversation. John and Emma, it's really great to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here with you and Emma. Thanks, Sean. Well, look, John, it's fantastic to have you with us to discuss the book. First of all, tell us, what's the big idea? The big idea is that a lot of companies do competitive intelligence to a certain degree, but where I see companies falling down is the idea of competitive insight, turning that intelligence, the data, into insights about what the competitor is going to do in response to you or just on their own. And part of what I've seen over the 20 years I've been helping companies with these issues is that a lot of times it comes down to the competitor not being understood. I, I've heard so many clients say that their competitor was irrational. And at first I thought, well, they're using like the behavioral economics term or they're just throwing it away as a phrase. But I, I came to realize companies really believe their competitors truly are irrational when they're making choices that the company doesn't understand. And what I realized was oftentimes that's because we're not taking the time to look at the world from the competitor's point of view. And once you do, it makes sense what the competitor is doing. And so the book is trying to help set up frameworks and the structures and processes and ways in which you can get inside the competitor's mindset to understand, oh, that's why they're doing what they're doing. Because if we think of it just on the surface level, every company is trying to do something different. Every company is trying to find a niche or being innovative or doing something to, to stand out. And if that's the case, then your competitors should not be doing exactly what you're doing. Yeah, and, and wouldn't the world be boring if we were all trying <laughs> to do the same thing in exactly the exactly. same way, right? Why do you think companies have such a hard time understanding why their competitors act the way that they do? And how, why is it so hard to get into a competitor's mindset? I think there there's sort of two reasons. One is, as I was sort of saying, we look at the world of the way we look at the world. And that sort of creates this mindset in ourselves of, well, that's the way in which you achieve success. And when you see someone do something different, it it's dis it creates this dissonance with what you think is the right answer in your industry or your sector. And I think the other reason why it's hard to see um, the competitor is that, you know, there's actually research that shows that people with more seniority, more power, more status have a harder time being empathetic. And part of that is because we've been so successful as we get to be leaders because we've made the choices that turned out to be right and got us promoted. And so therefore they must be the right choices and any others don't make sense to us. Indeed. That's, that's really interesting. But have you come across any instances, John, where a competitor actually did act irrationally? I will be honest. I've yet to see a competitor who acts truly irrational. And what I define as irrational is say, for example, I want to increase my market share. And so I triple my prices. That's generally not going to be successful in helping you increase your market share. Whenever I have a, a client say they're being irrational, I usually ask the client questions and the client then tells me why the competitor was irrational. 
So an example was I was doing a war game for a, a transportation client and we were thinking, should we add warehousing space to the game as a choice? And the client said, no, because our competitors are irrational with their warehouse. And I said, well, why is that? They said, because it's a mature industry. We've got excess capacity and they're adding warehouse space. Like who adds extra volume when you're over capacity? I said, well, that certainly seems irrational. And I paused and I said, have you guys added any uh, capacity in the last 18 months? And he looked to me like, well, what, do, what do you mean? I said, well, have you added any? I'm just curious. And he started to list, yeah, we expanded this facility. We added this facility. We acquired this extra facility, et cetera. And got about 12 or so different facilities. And I said, so you've added 12 facilities or expanded. They've added four and they're irrational because of that. And he sort of looked to me and said, yeah, but there was a good reason for why we added all those 12. And I said, yeah, there's a good reason why they're adding those four too. So I think that's more of it. It's not that it's truly irrational. It's that it's either stuff that we wouldn't do or things we don't want them to do. And that we, we sort of just ascribe that to irrationality. So when your competitors are doing something that seems irrational, how would you recommend one approach figuring out their potential rational reasons for doing so, and then what that means for your competitive response. You know, some of the things in the book that I talk about are how, how can you how can you break out of your own mindset and force yourself to look at the world from someone else's point of view, and that's that's really what these frameworks are about: is being explicit about what are they saying, what are they doing. If I had their assets, what would I do with them? If I were them, did they just hire someone? What's that person's background? Because people tend to repeat backgrounds and habits that they've developed in the past. It's about being deliberate. Instead of just saying the outcome or the answer of what they did doesn't seem irrational, break it down into, okay, if I were them or if I were working for them, if I was working with this person, what would I expect that? Oh, now it makes sense. Got it. And, and that understanding makes it easier to predict their next strategic move then, right? Yeah. The whole, the whole reason why I think this is important is that when you're developing your own strategy, you should be thinking about, well, if I increase my price or if I decrease my prices, what do I think my competitor is going to do? If I think I'm going to decrease price by 5% and I'm going to create all this market share, I should at least ask the question, yeah, but if they match that price decrease, then nothing happens. And so anytime we're building a new plant or trying to acquire someone or change our pricing or whatever it is, we should always be thinking about as in any game, if I make this move, what do I think the person's going to do in response? And if you think the person's irrational, it sort of gives you the free out, like you said, of saying, well, if they're irrational, I can never understand them. So why bother? And I think that's the mistake is if the minute you say they're irrational, you give up even trying to think about what they're going to do. And so therefore it's more likely you will run into a brick wall because I didn't expect that to happen. When if you just take it a little bit of time, you might've said, oh yeah, they might do that, but how can I make sure we don't get into that brick wall? So we've established that competitors are rational. They might not see the world in the same way as you, and they might not have the same objectives as you, but they are behaving rationally for what they see and what they're trying to achieve. You talked about some of the frameworks in the book. There's one, the four-stage framework uh, that, that that you center on a little bit. Can you tell us about that and you know how you see the, some of these techniques working in practice? Yeah, the, the four-step getting into your competitor's head is sort of the, the basic one. And this, the first step is just pay attention to what they say and what they do. And, and that one is, I think, where most people are pretty good about competitive intelligence if they do anything. This is like, you know, downloading earnings calls or annual reports or, you know, scanning media releases, that kind of stuff. The second step, though, is where you say, what, well, what assets and resources and capabilities do they have? 
And that's where you really start to differentiate the competitor from you is, oh, they have a supply chain, which is, has got uh, these markets or uh, these geographies that we don't, or they've built an extra plant or they've upgraded their facilities or they've got different distributors, et cetera. That's where you start to see, really see the difference in what a company is capable of doing. And so it's sort of the way I like to phrase it is, okay, if I had their toys to play with, what would I do? The third step is, okay, that's great, but who's the person making the decision? Who's the decision maker and what do we know about them? And this is where the concept that as people get more senior in, in business, in their careers, they tend to develop habits. I like to say that someone who is elected to be, you know, is chosen to be a CEO of a company who grew up as a marketer won't all of a sudden decide to start re-optimizing the footprint of factories. Like they're a marketer. And so that person will start to focus on marketing things to help the company grow. Partly because they'll think that's why the board hired me is because of my marketing background. So I don't want to start going and exploring new things because I'll probably get fired if I don't succeed. So seeing who the person is who's actually leading the initiative or making the choice can help you understand how are they going to make how are they going to look at it? What are the what's the functional focus or what's the geographic focus, et cetera? And then the fourth thing, which I think is one place where technology really hasn't caught up, is about making the prediction and then tracking the prediction to see what you, how it lined up with what happened in the real world. So I've, I've paid attention to what they said and did, and I've looked at all the assets they had, and I looked at the leader and I said, I think they're going to do this in the next three to six months. You have to go back and say, well, what did they do? And if what they did was online with what you thought, you say, okay, well, I'm, I think I'm on the right track. Let me make another prediction. If you're off, then you can go back and say, what did I miss? Oh, they had this partner that they used, or, oh, they hired that new person in the job and that person was making the decision. And so that just updates what you pay attention to going forward to help you make better predictions. The, the objective is never to be 100% accurate because we never will be. But it's a lot better to be 50%, even 30% accurate than to be 0% accurate in predicting what your competitor is going to do. And, and, a and you know, we often talk in the strategy practice, we talk about the social side of strategy. And there's a lot that you're talking about here, which is the social side of strategy, the way that yeah. senior leaders are ingrained, the way, the way their thinking is ingrained or the way they might be able to apply themselves to the empathy required to make predictions and follow those predictions up. Yeah. How do how do the people that do this well have the right conversations with the senior leaders in their organizations with these insights, with these predictions, so that they can use them to then make decisions about what to do in response? I think the hardest thing about getting these stories to be uh, impactful with senior leaders is that it's more about storytelling than it is about charts and data and spreadsheets. It's hard to say, here's what we should have invested and here's what the return would have been. And so here's the business case on a, you know, a spreadsheet like format. I, I say, come up with the examples of where there were big challenges the company faced in the past. Or do you remember when we entered Latin America and we got hammered by that competitor and we lost our $200 million investment? Take that story and then go back and say, can we look at what the competitor had done before? And can we say that, yeah, if we'd actually spent a little bit of time, we might not have perfectly predicted it, but we would have seen them as a threat and paid more attention to them. I know anecdotes aren't proof, but you want those big, hairy, messy anecdotes to be in the senior leader's mind to say, oh, this is something we need to pay attention to. And then conversely, when you flip it around and start implementing it, you don't want to go for big wins. You want to go for little, little small wins to build up the, the right to get bigger and bigger. So focus on one area, focus on one or two competitors and one or two strategic choices. Maybe it's pricing a product portfolio from one competitor 
and just track that and show that I can predict it better and better and better. And they'll say, great, now can you predict their distribution? Yes. Now can you predict their moves in this region? Yes. Once you start to see that you get positive feedback from the competitive intelligence, you want more. And the price for it is, well, give me more information from what you're seeing and I'll be able to get better answers back to you. You know, it seems a really great way to start. Uh, but does this notion of starting small also apply when you're venturing in like a new strategic direction, if you want to get a sense of the competitor response, because sometimes you need to make a big strategic move, say, such as an acquisition. Some strategic choices we make, we can't incrementally, you know, do stage gates for those choices. It has to be a big move. Like if I'm going to acquire a company, I can't acquire them partially over time. And if I want to expand my facilities, I can't necessarily expand it, you know, incrementally. On the other hand, if I think about that as saying, well, maybe it's a choice where I can maybe expand a product into a couple different areas. Well, if my competitor is paying attention to me, now they'll have insight into, ah, I think I know what John's trying to do. And so I'm going to actually block him because I know about it. We have this idea, and this is, again, part of our fear about competitors is they're just sitting there waiting to pounce. They're watching every move and they're just tracking it. And the minute we try to do something, they're ready to attack us. In fact, most competitors are not ready. There's a fair number of people that don't even recognize the fact that you're making a move until a couple weeks, if not a couple months after you've actually made the move in the market. So it's not necessarily that I need to sneak into the market before they recognize it. You know, if it's a big move you have to make, this that's where the war game and black hat exercises, the simulations can be really helpful to sort of say, well, if I well, I'm going to have some, you know, Emma, I want you to play competitor one and Sean, you play competitor two. And here's what I want to do. What would you guys do in response if if that's what I was doing? And even that level of how you would respond, uh, if I give you enough information about who competitor one is and Emma plays competitor one and you two, you can come up with pretty, pretty accurate responses of how to behave. And then I can go back and say, OK, well, if that's the reaction I expect from the two of you, how would I do things differently? So, so going, so going back to some of the some of the things that you've done as part of the research for the book. One of the things that I thought was really cool was you interviewed a whole pile of people from quite different, quite different backgrounds, all sorts of different characters. Can you tell me a bit about why you did that and what were some of the insights that uh, that you took away that we can learn as business leaders? Yeah, this came from an idea that one of the challenges with competitive insight in general is that you can't talk to your competitors. I can talk to my partners, I can talk to my suppliers, I can talk to distributors about what are you planning on doing, but I can't talk to the competitor. I can't call him and say, what are you going to do with pricing in the next six months? Or what products are you introducing and when? And so you have to intuit it from sort of uh, outside in uh, secondary third party resources. And this colleague said, you know, it's not that dissimilar to a homicide detective because you can't ask the dead body, hey, who killed you? If you could, it'd be you know, a lot easier. And I sort of took that and said, there have to be other people who face the same challenge, other professionals. And what I came up with was archaeologists, paleontologists, and NICU nurses. Um, NICU nurses can interact with the baby, but you know, a, a baby that smiles and giggles is not happy to see you. It's just generally that you know they've got gas moving through their body. And a paleontologist can dig up the fossil bones, but that doesn't really tell you how T-Rex ran or, or necessarily if it hunted impacts until you actually tried to put that together for footprints and other stuff, but we'll never truly know. And so what I wanted to do by talking to these different groups was to say, how do you approach this challenge where you can't directly interrogate the subject of your research? That's where I sort of synthesized their answers into these 10 lessons that are in the book. Things like the, the number one thing that came out, which was actually a little bit surprising, but was quite interesting, was to create a diverse team. 
um, pretty much across the board, everyone said diversity is key. If you want to have a really good insight, you have to have people who look at the problem from different angles, uh, whether that's different cultural backgrounds, different genders, different uh, functional backgrounds, educational backgrounds, et cetera. Um, that the more people with different voices you have participating and actively participating, the better answer you'll get. Right. And it, and it brings some real personality and also, I think, helps to bring out some of these um, th these more human aspects. It's not just about the data sources and analyzing the data sources in a particular way. It's about there's a level of creativity, there's a level of empathy, there's 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 all sorts of there's all sorts of pieces which you might not necessarily from the outset imagine would be part of gathering competitive. Yeah, it's a great point. I think I think that is like one of the reasons I also wanted to add this so it doesn't become just a rote mechanism of filling in the frameworks and putting slides together, that it really is about how do we step back and think about things a little differently? Like what you know, what can I learn from an archaeologist or a paleontologist about strategy? Oh, I can learn something. So how do I look at the world differently than I've been looking at it to to gain some insight? It it it's really that mindset in yourself that needs to be different if you want to be the create competitive insight. Changing tack slightly, we talked a bit about you know the human dimension and the part that that, that human brains and uh -huh. human collaboration needs to bring to this endeavor. But can you tell us a little bit about the advantages that technology can bring in getting into the mindsets of of, of competitors and how do you complement? a technological approach with uh, with with some of these more human creative aspects that that we've been discussing. Sure. I I think number one I would say I I absolutely believe that technology is helpful and valuable because at its core it's hard to do competitive insight with having without having a good database of what companies have done in the past and or are doing currently. And so just in terms of creating patterns and and creating the data the, the fact base on which to base the competitive insight is crucial. You, you can't do competitive insight without actually having data to base it on. And dashboards and uh, competitive insight dashboards or business analytics dashboards, et cetera, are really helpful for codifying and collecting all that information. And absolutely, if you're not doing it, you should start to implement these. I 100% agree that we should be doing that. There are sort of two things you need to think about when you're trying to predict your competitor. Um, one is, are they going to be following patterns? Uh, and for pattern tracking, artificial intelligence and dashboards can be really helpful as long as it's a pattern that you help the AI recognize. So for example, if I expect the competitor to continue certain pricing patterns, that's great. I should expect that to continue fine. If I want to say, go back and how will the competitor react when I change my prices or when a competitor changes their prices? I have to train the AI to know not only when they change their prices, the competitor, that I'm tracking, but when others in the industry change their prices, so I can then align it with what the competitor the, I'm focusing on did in response. And I'm not sure that AI has gotten to that level where it's more holistic and systemic of, of tracking multiple competitors relative to each other to find all those patterns of if A moves, then B does this, and then C is going to respond three months later. So that's number one is being a little bit more uh, sophisticated in terms of how you predict and see patterns. The second thing, though, which I think AI is still not good at, is predicting changes. So, for example, I there's a case that I used to do with my students to prep them for consulting interviews, and in the case, one of the it was a consumer products goods uh, case, and one of the companies their market share in the industry went from 33 to 30 to 27, and another went from 27 to 30 to 33. And the, comp the company that you're consulting sort of stayed flat at the, at the time. And I said, so which company should you be worried about? The one whose market share went up or the one whose market share went down? 
And most often they say, oh, the one that went up because the, their market share went up, they went strong. I said, but do we know that they want their market share to continue to go up or are they sort of happy with where they are? are and just want to keep maintaining it? Or did they sort of get lucky that their market share went up without them doing anything and it's going to fall back down because they're not paying attention to it? And similarly, the one whose market share went down, is it going to continue to go down because they're trying to exit that market and they're not focusing on it? Or are they going to be really aggressive to try to get that market share back? Or are they just going to try to stabilize things because they've been focused on other areas and are just going to let them, they don't want to lose any more. And so just knowing the historical patterns of what's happened with market share doesn't necessarily tell us, is that pattern going to continue or change? And that's where the psychology and sort of that human element has to come in and say, okay, given what I know about them and what they're saying and what they're doing, do I expect them to continue that pattern or change direction because it's not an outcome that they want? And that's where I don't know that technology really has gotten good enough to be able to make predictions and track predictions without a human element in inter um, intervention with it. Well, thanks so much, John. Building on your point about codifying patterns, what types of information should companies track and what role should advanced technology play in that? I mean, market share is obviously one indicator that we've, we've seen, for example, the use of AI to scan all published patent filings, all real estate acquisitions, basically sort of everything knowable to then distill that down. And so do, do you have any other suggestions in terms of the kinds of things that companies should should leverage advanced technology to really sort of suck up all the available information and try and process it. I think it's a it, it's a it's a great question because one of the challenges I've seen with companies that try to do competitive intelligence is they try to do everything. They try to collect all information about all competitors all at once, and then they don't really have the staff or the ability to analyze the information and put together insights. And so when someone calls and says, "Hey, we're going up on a competitive bid against this company," what do you have? They just dump them like pages and pages upon pages of stuff and say, here's what we know about them. Well, that's not really helpful. The person, you know, the, the person who's trying to make the bid is going, I don't have time to read through thousands of pages of stuff. And so nothing ever happens with it. I think it goes back to what I was saying before is if when you want to start the competitive insight function in your organization, you need to start small. And that doesn't mean start small as like not resourced. It means start focused. What are, who are the major competitors we want to track and what are the things we want to track about them? So is it about product innovation? Is it about pricing moves? Is it about acquisitions, talent management, supply chain, whatever? And how you figure that out is just doing interviews within your organization of asking different folks of, you know, where have we seen the competitor surprise us? Where have we made moves where the competitor sort of challenged us in terms of their response? And you can pretty quickly come up with a small set of these are the competitors and these are the choices. And once you start doing that, it'll help you focus in on how do we collect the data. If I'm focusing on, you know, like pricing and if I'm focusing on acquisitions, I don't need to go reverse engineer their product portfolio. That's going to be way too much detail. But I need to track what are their pricing moves been. I need to track sort of over time, how often have they made acquisitions? How big have those acquisitions been? Have they been bolt-ons or not? And so I can start very simply. And as I start to build up that, that information, that will lead both to what I know I need this other piece of information. Great. Or I start to give feedback to the people in the organization, my colleagues, and they say, that's great. Can you also look at this? Because I have this other question. So it's, I always like to say it's the earn the right to expand and do more. It's not that dissimilar from the idea of a MVP product in as, as an entrepreneur. And that's really what you're at doing as a competitive insight analyst analyst is you're starting as an entrepreneur building something and you want to start with the MVP, the minimum viable product and get it out there and get feedback and response from the people in your organization and continue to develop and refine and expand it over time. Thanks, John. I was wondering what role 
John Nash's equilibrium theory and game theory in general has played in how you recommend people evaluate the likely moves of their competitors? Great question. So the first answer of the Nash equilibrium, essentially all the Nash equilibrium says in game theory is that I'm going to do the best response and reaction to you, and you're going to play the best response and reaction to me. So there's not an objective correct answer that everyone has to play. It really is, if I think your best response is to increase prices, then what should I do in response to that? And as long as your response stays the same to increase prices, that's what you'll do. I think with Nash, you know, Nash and the theory of economics always starts from this idea that we want to profit maximize. But in the real world, sometimes we're trying to maximize market share in the hopes of getting profits down the road. Or sometimes we're trying to maximize short-term earnings because, you know, or sometimes we're trying to just focus on integrating an acquisition as quickly as possible and not messing that up. So different companies have different objectives over time. And all Nash would say is, okay, if that's their objective, are they going to do the same answer and same response given what you do? So it's not, I mean, it's not explicitly in there, but it actually, it's it's sort of the grounding of, we have to think about the world, not from what I want the other player to do, but what the other player is going to do in their own best response. So can you leverage competitive insights in the same way that you've been describing if you're not running a for-profit organization. I'm thinking of things like governments or other public and social sector institutions. If you're a not-for-profit, if you can talk to other not-for-profits about where you're going to go try to raise money philanthropically, there always are going to be times where you walk away thinking, I'm not sure I got the full story there. And whenever you walk away and say, I'm not sure I got the full story there, that's when the insights from the book can apply. Okay, what's going on that I'm not picking up? Well, how can I look at the world from their viewpoint? And and really get a more complete answer. Um, so whether it's a not-for-profit, a, a government organization, a, uh, a charity organization, a philanthropic organization, uh, whatever it is, this applies anytime you're trying to understand someone else who's making a decision. You know, as Emma, you keep saying, it's like the human element, the social element. That's it's really what it's about. It's like how do we understand these other human beings we're interacting with? Because competitors aren't a black box of an organization. They're human beings inside those organizations making choices. And we've got to understand how those other human beings are making choices. Yeah. I mean, John, I really, I really agree with that. And I think, you know, in in the public sector and the not-for-profit sector, there may be times when the language of competitor is, is valid if you're competing for funds or, you know, if you're, if, if you're in a, in a government situation where you're competing with other departments for funds, or you're in a contested environment, in negotiations or what have you, um, yep. but I think also if you if you take away the word competitor and you just as you say think about other stakeholders that whose decisions have an influence on me, um, who you could you could talk to potentially or maybe you can't for a variety of reasons. So you might be wanting to talk to citizens about you know how they would react to a particular course of action that you would be that you would be taking as a government agency or as a or as a non profit agency. And you might ask them, you know, what what would you feel about this, or how would you react to it? They might just not know. So you would have to. You, would, I think, that the tools that you're describing and the kind of the really understanding the 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 insight and the data that you can gather, and then applying that to well, what would I do if I were them, given what I'm trying to maximize and optimize if I were them. So then, what, how would I feel? How what would I do? How would I react? I think it's just as applicable. You maybe just frame it in a slightly less kind of conflicting way um but i think the I, I think everything that you're talking about is 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 equally is equally relevant so john tell can you give us some examples of institutions that uh, that you see doing this 
really well? And what is it that the what is it? What's the magic sauce that they've got that enables them to put all of this into practice? I think there are some companies that are good at certain parts of this, and it's the parts that they focus on. I mean, some some of the companies that I ran into that do this really well. There's a financial services industry company that a had had support from the CEO and. Part of the way they got that support from the CEO is anytime someone came to propose a new strategic initiative to the CEO, the first question is, did you talk to the competitive insight group first? And if the answer was no, that person left the room and there was no presentation. So it just became, it became part of the way the company did business that you had to work with that group. The other thing is they were very deliberate about how they set up their organization. They had different business units and they had different people assigned to different business units. Um, so there was really good communication and a really structured way in which com- information flowed up and down throughout the organization. So I think they did a really good job of sharing that. Actually, the the person I, I spoke with at that company is the one who gave me the sort of the term of competitive insight instead of competitive intelligence. And I, I really latched onto that because I like it about developing the insight as opposed to just information and intelligence. The other company that I, that I, that I worked with, I thought was really good was a, um, building materials company. And what they did was they had lots of regional managers and there were the regional managers just focused on their region. They didn't talk to others. And it was a problem because the competitors would do sort of similar strategies in across regions, sort of roll it out across the globe. And so there was a lot of missed opportunity. And so they centrally just started saying to the regional managers, look, just give us information about these main competitors and we'll just share you some information back about what we're hearing. And they did that. And at first there was grumbling of, ah, it's just another form to fill out. But then when the first sort of reports started trickling and they said, oh, um, my, you know, that competitor raised price or lowered prices in the country next door. Let me, oh my gosh, they're lowering prices here. It, it sort of became this, oh, what else can you tell me? And so they did a really good job of starting small, starting focused really, um, and really integrating the, the, you know, at the coal face, so to spit, so to say of gathering data and intelligence, and then creating this virtuous feedback loop of, you want more information? Give us more information. We have more information. We'll give it to you. So I think those are some of the the big lessons of it. The, for the first one, what I focus on is make sure that however you set up the competitive insight function, that it fits, so to speak, the organization. Don't attach something and say, it's got to have this different structure because it's just going to be rejected by the organization. And the second one is, is earn the right. Earn the right by providing value and showing that you provide value. Because once you start giving information that helps people do their job better, they're going to want more. And if the price of that is, I'm going to have to give you more information. If I set up systems and structures where it's easy for you in your normal workflow to provide me that information. And this again is where technology can be really helpful. If you have to fill out a sales form, add like one or two lines of what, what competitor did you talk about and what topic did you talk about? Just that simple enough of stuff can help you say, we keep hearing about the same competitor and always it's about pricing. So just be on the lookout. That kind of information can be really helpful um, as you're starting to set up these processes. And I think what I'm hearing is there's something here that's about being re- being relevant, being business relevant, um, and answering the questions that executives want answered in order to help them make decisions, not insight for insight's sake, if you like. And um, I'm also hearing there are a few kind of micro habits that you can that you can wire into the organization. And one of the things that you were talking about in the book was some. Um, trying to be trying to be more proactive you know not having this be a reactive 
exercise, but a proactive exercise. Yeah. One, one of the areas that I think would be really valuable, you know, I've, I've done a lot of war games and war games are simulations that we set up to sort of simulate how a business strategy is going to play out in the real world. And generally these are for big strategic decisions because really what it's like, we've all sat down and we've had meetings, you know, quarterly meetings or annual meetings say, okay, so what's going to happen in the industry and what do we think we should be doing next year? And we sort of like the future of the industry conversation. Most often those conversations happen from the perspective of what we want. And in general, without us necessarily saying it, what we think would be good for us going forward. So we think the industry is going to evolve in such a way that's good for us. All you have to do is if you sit around that table and say, uh, everyone gets assigned a different competitive hat or a different partner hat or supply chain hat, you know, to your point, it doesn't have to be just about competitors, another stakeholder. Just say, okay, let's talk about how the industry is going to evolve in the next three to five years. But from the perspective of, well, if it was us, this is what we would do. That that additional level of reality of just not just what we want to happen and what we think would be good for us, I think would be raise the bar in terms of a helping us be more realistic about what's going to happen, but B also sort of like to your point, ingraining this habit of, we always have to be making sure not that we're focusing on them exclusively and the others in the ecosystem exclusively, but that it's integrated in part of how we just normally think about making strategic decisions. So how do you find that companies prioritize building customer insights versus building competitive insights? Do companies that develop competitive insights really effectively also tend to do well with customer insights and customer research? And are there any tips or tricks that you see companies take to sort of span both and do both really well? Companies do a better job of understanding customers. Um, and consumers and developed really good uh, dashboard analytics for understanding customers and, and consumers. And when that applies to competitors, it's mostly like, well, they buy us instead of the competitor. They buy our product instead of the competitors. But it sort of stops there in terms of the competitor. I think turning around all those insights you have about like, why does the consumer buy our product and what are they thinking about and why do they choose us over the competitor? Turn that around to thinking about your competitors. Like, you know, I, I've done other strategy workshops where it's not necessarily about the competitor, you know, developing strategy for the company. And at the end, we, or it's part of the workshop, we say, okay, what makes you distinctive? And the company says, oh, you know, we've got great quality and we're really responsive to our customers, et cetera. And we list the whole thing. And I did this once. I'm looking at the, the list that the senior vice presidents and division leads are, are putting out there. And I'm, I'm thinking the whole time I'm thinking, this is just like any competitor would say the same thing. Like any company in your industry has got to be saying the same thing to customers. And they list all these things and they're, you know, they're proud of all the things they came up with that are different. I'm, I'm about to say, well, and the CEO raises his hand and said, can I say something? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And he said, this is exactly what all of our competitors are saying to their customers. So how is this different? And again, that's the challenge we face is, is that we're, we are pretty good about understanding com customers and what they're focusing on. We, we've got to use those same empathetic techniques to apply to uh, supply chain partners and ecosystem uh, stakeholders and competitors also, uh, even regulators. Like, why are regulators making the moves they're making? You, everyone who you're interacting with in the business, we're, I would say we're better with customers than we are with any other group. We just need to apply some of those same techniques to others. I mean, a real quick example. It's a real quick example. Companies are really good at scanning social media to understand how customers and consumers are responding to their product. They don't necessarily apply those same techniques always to how are they doing it with their competitors' products? What is the net the net promoter score for our competitor? And how am I tracking whether the positive responses or negative responses are changing for my competitors? We do it for ourselves. We're great at doing that. 
but it's about turning around for them and then seeing how that can help us gain insight to what the competitor is going to do. It, it's not necessarily rocket science. It's just about turning those empathetic tools into to others. Thanks so much, John. This has been a fascinating conversation. So final question, where are you going next with your research into competitor insights? Where I would focus next on the competitor uh, insight portion is really it's the technology question of how do we embed this idea of predictive technology support into some of the dashboards that we have? How, how do we help technology help us make better predictions? Because we're not the best at human as human beings and making predictions. And so I think technology supported predictions. This isn't like, uh, you know, chat, uh, the AI chat bots, right? This is, this is not about doing the competitive insight for you. It's about supplementing what you need to do. And so I think that's where it, that's where I think the future of competitive insight is going to be is not replacing human beings with the insight, but about supplementing and providing more insights so that we can make better predictions. Definitely. Awesome. Emma, John, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I enjoy this. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. And we'd like to thank everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to subscribe, all you need to do is follow our weekly series on your favorite podcast player. And there you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. If you prefer to see us on the web, you can visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can easily search our prior podcast organized across six major themes and also access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF, that's for Strategy and Corporate Finance, or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.